Welcome to Midwretched, the home of the most heartless of the heartland. Join us, Tommy and Mick, as we share the best true crime tales the Midwest has to offer. Welcome back to Midwretched, friends. Welcome. I hope you're all excited. Yeah, about this case today and other things. How are you? I am good. good. I'm feeling all right. I'm glad to hear it. I got the Christmas spirits in me. Aw. Thanks, Mindy. <laughs> <laughs> Our second Mindy shout out. I have other shout outs to give today because look at my hair. Yeah. So um, my hairstylist is the best person ever, and he hooked me up with this rose gold um, toner on my balayage, and I'm obsessed with it. I could, I can't either. And the first time I met him and I told him what I wanted, I know I mispronounced it, and I still think about that moment, and I know he listens, so Clint, (laughs) I love you. Speaking of vibes, this story has got some serious vibes. And I, to be honest, like I've been working on this narrative for a while and I find this story to be fascinating and really interesting, but I was just having kind of a hard time like feeling connected to it. So, um, but we're kind of in my backyard here. We're we're in Northern Indiana for this story. So um, I found somebody on Facebook Marketplace that was selling something that I wanted to get my kid for Christmas. And she happened to live out in Belgunis country, and we're talking about Belgunis today. So um, I went out there, and I made sure that somebody knew where I was going. (laughs) (laughs) And um, suddenly, like, being out there just, like, it was like a light bulb clicked, and I just suddenly felt, like, that much more confident in this story. So it was just something about, like, being out there and seeing the farmland and, like, kind of imagining a little bit of this landscape and how it might have been at that time, like... Not much different. Not that much different, yeah. No. Yeah. Because, like, you're talking about, like, you were in Belgunas country. It's not even that far from just your country, like, where no, you are. No, yeah, it was about a 40-minute drive. It was a 40-minute <laughs> little drive, yeah. Not a big thing at all, but I don't tend to have like a lot of occasion to go out there. So, no. but it was just, it was cool. And it would kind of put me in the headspace of like, just imagining everything. And it, it made my inner like history major just like sing, Aww. you know? Yeah. So that's the story today. Do you have any updates or shout outs before I get started? No updates. I got a shout out to Mendel for the Christmas spiced bourbon that I'm drinking. Yes. And just the fact that we love you. And just the fact that we love you, you're our biggest fan. Fucking yes. hell yeah. I hear an animal skittering upstairs. Is it Satan Cat? It's Satan Cat. I don't know what he's doing. Oh, and now he's being followed by a human man. <laughs> so, uh, today's case takes us to uh, the way back. We have to get in our way back machines. That's right. I need you to make that noise because I can't do it. But so we're going back on our way back machine and we are going to be delving into the case of Indiana's most infamous serial killer. 
and arguably the most infamous female serial killers ever, Belle Gunnis. Girl power. Yeah. <laughs> I actually have some things to say about that potentially because, girl, you know I have a take on this. So before I kind of delve into the whole story, I got to give credit where credit is due. So lots and lots of information about Balgunis is out there. A lot of it curated by the LaPorte County Historical Society. They have done a really awesome job just like compiling letters and images and like the museum in that town literally has like skulls of Belgunis's victims like on display morbid yeah morbid and awesome so that has been like an awesome resource and then i read this really great book by harold schecter called hell's princess and he's really good and the book is like like the kindle version has like interactive little like moving images and stuff. It was just like That's a really so enjoyable cool. experience. Yeah, All right. like yeah. really cool illustrations and I just loved it. So that really helps to bring a lot of like the details of this case to to light. There's tons of resources out there for this one, but those are ones I really enjoyed and appreciated kind of along the way here. So you ready? I'm so ready. I've been ready for this for months. Guys, this has been like one of our top episode yes. that we wanted to do. since we started yes yes so i'm gonna take us first to april 28th 1908 okay it's the early hours of the morning a large farmhouse in laporte indiana goes up in flames so the farm was home to belle gunnis and her three children 11 year old myrtle nine year old lucy and five year old philip Joe Maxson, a farmhand of Bell's, was woken up by the smell of smoke. So he, at first, he thought that Bell was just like firing up a really hearty breakfast. And then he's like, oh, is she burning the hotcakes? And then he's like, oh, no, something is really on fire. So um, as the smell kind of grew, he kind of got up and just ran towards Bell's room to try to figure out what was going on. But it, it was so hot. The fire was everywhere. He ran out to try to get some neighbors and the neighbors actually at the same time kind of saw the fire and probably also smelled it and ran over two neighbors came over like on bicycles so it's three men joe and a couple of neighbors and they just kind of barge into the house basically to try to rescue Belle and her kids but unfortunately it was too late and there was no one alive to save as dawn gave way to day that morning and, and police are arriving they found four badly burnt bodies uh, the three children and that of a headless woman. Ooh. Yes. So, how did we get here? Spooky, spooky. Spooky, spookies. Let me tell you how we got here. So, we're going to go back again in our way back machine. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I really only say that to get you to do that. I know. <laughs> Um, so Belle Gunnis, the widow uh, who owned the farm, and like a lot of this language is very antiquated um, because it, you know, people would refer to a woman as a, a widow first, right? So Belle Gunnis was born in a tiny, tiny, tiny town in Norway called Selbu. Selbu. Cutest name for a town. Very um, cute. And she was born probably in 1859, which is exactly 100 years before my mom. And... <laughs> So she was born in Selbu, and at birth, her name was Brunhilda Polstotir Storset. That is a good name. I know, right? Um, so little Brunhilda is growing up in, in Selbu, Norway, 
And this is one of those parts of her story that doesn't get told as much, but she grew up really, really poor. So it was like a farming town and a fishing town. And her family was definitely kind of like laughed at in town. Like they were definitely like more impoverished than most. Um, You know how in Scandinavian countries, like the last names are often like the father's name and then dotir for daughter or son for son. I didn't Um, know that, but okay. I like it. Oh, yeah. So like if your uh, father's name was Michael, then your last name would be Michelson. Or no, you're a daughter, so it'd be Mike, Michael's daughter. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> if you were like, a boy, a <laughs> if you were a boy, which we know your parents thought you were, then you would have been Michelson. So. Sorry again, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I was supposed to be Ethan, so whatever. So, you know, that's why her middle name was Paul's daughter, Paul's daughter. But they were so poor in town that they couldn't afford firewood. So she would go around, like, collecting twigs and stuff. And so people in town laughed at her and called her Brunhilde, Paul's twig daughter. Aww. Yeah. She had this kind of rough and tumble, you know, way of growing up. And as a teenager, she was... um, kind of hired out as like a milkmaid kind of as she grew up she also started to get made fun of um, for her looks she was uh, very tall some accounts say five nine some say six feet but she was tall right my kind of lady I know me too and and I have a lot to say about that too and she was like upwards of like 250 some accounts would say 300 pounds so she was big and she was strong but she was not seen as particularly beautiful so people kind of made fun of her a lot and what I have to say about that is I love a big lady mm-hmm. like I just think statuesque women are so beautiful yes and this ends up being kind of like a part of her story that I find really reductive mm-hmm. and frustrating that I'm going to talk about later as well so um, I need to keep my rage in a pocket for now all right rage pocket Rage pocket. So um, she had this kind of hard life, a lot of physical labor, a really small town, like I said. Now, this part of her story is unverified. This is one of these things that came out um, after everything happened with the fire at the farm. So it's otherwise unverified. So I give that caveat. Okay. It is said that in 1877 or so, so she would have been like an older teenager, that she was impregnated by a rich guy in town. Obviously outside of marriage, obviously kind of like an upstairs-downstairs kind of situation. And it was said that the guy actually beat her up so badly that she miscarried. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then the guy died a couple of months later by what circumstance we're not totally sure stomach cancer or an ulcer is what they said was the cause of death but uh, people that told this story and claimed that it was true would say that it kind of symbolized like her turning point in a way like her kind of burgeoning hatred of men is kind of how it was seen and i think also like another part of her character was that she really really loved children and so if this is true it makes me wonder like if it's true, it's both a turning point as far as, like, her outlook on men, but maybe also her outlook on children. Interesting. So yeah. she, like, she really loved children before this? and 
Yeah. And then this was kind of like a a really scary turning point. And then kind of throughout her life, she would like take in and like semi-adopt a lot of kids. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's just kind of like seen as maybe part of why she kind of had that soft spot, I guess, kind of. That kind of instinct. Yeah, amid all this yeah. other like ruthlessness. So interesting. Okay. Um, I've done a lot of deep diving into her like headspace. So. As you should. As you should. So you know, as you can imagine, there was just not a lot of life for her in Selbu. And her older sister, who kind of anglicized her name to Nellie, had moved to the U.S. about ten years previously. So there was some precedent for her family emigrating to the U.S. So Belle followed suit in the early 1880s. Did she just kind of follow, like, anglicize her name as she moved to, just like Nellie? Yeah. Yep, yep. So when she got to the U.S., she moved to Chicago, which had a huge, huge um, Scandinavian community. Yeah, which I think is, like, a really cool part of Midwestern history. Like, um, we have the coolest little neighborhoods. I bet I know what neighborhood she moved to. I bet you do, too. There are some street names that I just kind of omitted from the story, but I can send you later. Okay. Um, But, yeah, like, a big part of Midwestern history is kind of the... um, Um, rush of Scandinavian immigrants into the area. So her sister was in Chicago, so that's where she went as well. And, like, I can imagine her mindset, like, growing up in Salbu and then arriving in Chicago, like, wow. Yeah. Look at all of this, you know? (laughs) And she really had kind of the best of both worlds, like, a strong Norwegian community, like, embedded in Chicago, but also, like, all of this big city opportunity. Mm Mm-hmm. So um, it wasn't too long after she moved to Chicago that she met a gentleman. His name was Mads Sorensen. Mads, ooh. I know. So she and Mads got married, and whether or not she gave birth to children naturally or adopted these children is kind of contested in different accounts. So I'm apt to think that she probably did have these children with Mads naturally, but um, it's hard to say because she was known to kind of um, adopt and like foster and take care of other kids. Yeah. So um, they had two children that survived infancy, uh, and that's Lucy and Myrtle. And then two who died early on uh, in their lives as babies, Axel and mm-hmm. Caroline. And now Axel and Caroline's deaths did both result in some small insurance claims being cashed in. Mm-hmm. But we don't necessarily count them as like part of Bell's death toll. Yeah. Um, just because infant mortality was such a reality in those So days. high. Yeah. And it, yeah. it's a it's definitely an undercurrent in this story that uh, shows itself in many, many, many ways. Mm-hmm. So nothing about that raised eyebrows. And I'm kind of apt to think like it probably shouldn't. Like at some point, if she had four natural children, odds are decent that you know one one or two were not going to survive infancy no in that day and age with the illness and everything that would go around infant mortality was pretty high yeah but there certainly are people who think that no those were bell's first victims um okay. so it's just kind of you know yay or nay whatever yay side you land on yeah just like I, there's not really evidence there and just mm-hmm. giving infant mortality i don't know so uh they did cash in some small insurance claims about that but again like that would be kind of par for the course right so mm-hmm. no eyebrows raised at this point now the couple did love children like i said like they would take in and take care of neighborhood kids 
And they actually fostered a little girl from the neighborhood named Jenny that ended up living with Bella for a long time, actually. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, like, the exact situation of her parentage, but Jenny, like, moved with Belle when she left Chicago. So fostered, adopted, you know, the terminology was just different, and so was the paperwork, right? So six of one, half dozen of the other, right? Right. Yeah, there was not the same kind of paperwork and following up. Yeah. So Mads worked as basically like a security guard for a department store, but they had some aspirations of entrepreneurship. So they opened a little candy store um, to try to kind of like realize that dream a little bit. And that's kind of another thing I kept thinking about with this story is like, at the end of the day, it's really in large part a story about immigration. And a story okay. about like how do you kind of make community? What does that mean? I have a lot of ideas about this, as you can tell. I've never heard that take on Bell Gunness, but okay, keep going. Really? Well, it's I okay. I have more, but so <laughs> you know, the, they opened the store and um, it really struggled. Like it just wasn't taking off. They weren't cutting much of a profit. It was just like you know, kind of always in the red, just not really super successful. And then about a year after it opened, the candy store burnt down. And that would be kind of the first of many fires that followed Belle in her life. Mm-hmm. And again, this one is kind of like the the babies in a way, like did Belle set this fire or not? Yeah. We don't totally know. Mm-hmm. Now, like investigators looked at the fire And they thought it looked a little bit weird, but couldn't really substantiate that it wasn't also just faulty wiring or bad insulation or any number of things that would have caught a place on fire. We're talking Chicago. Chicago Chicago was pretty flammable back in the day. It sure was. It sure was. And we're only, I think, at this point, like a decade out of the Great Fire. So, yeah, yeah, they were like, another fire. Okay. You know. Great. Yeah. (laughs) So they were able to to process an insurance claim for that property. And then they used that money to uh, buy a very lovely house in Austin, Illinois. Um, I don't know where that is, actually. I was thinking the Austin neighborhood. I got to know now. Yeah. The only Austin I'm thinking of is the Austin neighborhood. I bet you that's what it is. And back then it may have just been its own city. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so they used the insurance money to buy uh, a nice house in the Austin neighborhood of Chicago. It would, which would have been beautiful back then. Yeah, and that's actually one of the things that people would say was that like the house felt kind of um, above their station in a way. Uh-huh. Like it was a really gorgeous house, like big bay windows and like glass work and all this gorgeousness. And people were like, it felt maybe like an unwise purchase, like they're buying something kind of extravagant, even though they just lost their livelihood. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So like friends, and I, I use the term friends loosely because they weren't popular people, but people in their community gossiped a little bit that it was like kind of a little sus, as the kids say. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the best like teacher use of that. <laughs> I know. I know. So at this point, this is where like other kind of funky financial stuff starts to happen. 
So they moved to the Austin neighborhood, and then Mads kind of continued to work in retail spaces, like a little bit of sales, a little bit of security, just kind of work where he could get it. Along the way, there was like potentially this job offer that he had in Alaska that he would have had to pay into and then allegedly cash out upon like successful mining in Alaska. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And Bell was like, yes, do it. Like, it's cool if you go away for a year. We're going to make all this money off of it. And it turned out to be a scam. So they were actually victim to a scam. Fuck. I was hoping he was going to be a crab fisher. I know. I think that part of that that's really interesting, though, is that, like, Bell didn't really seem to care whether or not Mads came or went. Okay. Which I think, like, some people have said, like, that's kind of a sign of her being, like, really cold. Um, But I also think, like, in a historical context, like, marriage was a lot more transactional back in those days. Oh, my God, yeah. So I just... I don't know if that really means anything about her character or not. I just think it's interesting to point out, potentially. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I'm guessing whatever it was, that it was possibly dangerous. Yeah, it was like like, gold mining or something like that. Yeah, but also, like, they have these kids. Mm -hmm. They have this house that it sounds like they can't really afford. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And in the house that they couldn't really afford, there were some other small fires. Yes. So there was another fire and the house wasn't destroyed, but um, there was some damaged goods and they insured everything like the Sorensons insured like literally everything. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, that's a really nice toothbrush insured for five dollars. Cool. Let's do it. So so when they had a couple of these small house fires, they were able to cash in a $600 settlement in the dollars of the day, which is about 18 grand today. Oh, shit. Yeah. So if you like if you can imagine like, okay, we don't have like a super steady income, but here's 18 grand. That's going to float you for a decent amount of time, you know? Oh, yeah. That fire, again, was not seen as suspicious, and it was attributed to just bad insulation, which, again, infant mortality and fires just not seen as that uncommon or that unusual. Yeah, but now, like, you know, the little things add up and the little things start to get suspicious. Is Belle working at the time? No, she's like a full-time caretaker of kids, basically. Okay. Mm-hmm. But it is kind of said that she kind of, like, was in the driver's seat as far as financial decisions yeah. for the couple. So she was kind of very much like, um, what did Roseanne call it? A domestic artist. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I know, me too. I hate Roseanne for everything else, but I love that phrase. Uh, you know what? I love that sitcom from, like, the late 80s, early 90s, though. It's a great show. Uh. Yeah. Here's where things get a little funky, Okay. So this is kind of how life was for, for this couple for a number of years. In 1900, we got a new century, like, woohoo. Mads had a life insurance policy out of an organization called the Mutual Benefits Association. And that policy was supposed to expire on July 30th. So he had another plan that he was setting up. So he was just going to let that plan, like, time out, basically, and then start the new plan. So there would be one day in the year 1900 where both plans would be active. Oh. Yes. So no gap in coverage. You can imagine that that was an interesting day for the Sorensen family. 
It's an interesting day to die. It's an interesting day to die, and and that Mads did. So, <laughs> so I'm going to preempt this by saying that accounts of Mads' health were variable. So, um, whether or not he was like kind of adamant about having life insurance policies because Bell was in the driver's seat about that, or because he was being treated for um, like a minor heart issue by his doctor. Okay. Don't totally know, but okay. we do know that he was like very consistent about having that coverage. I'll, I'll put this out there. Being treated for a quote minor heart issue in 1900 is very different from being treated for a minor heart issue today. Totally. Totally. <laughs> yes. And all, everything about like the medical situations here is so interesting and like the forensic stuff later, it's just fascinating. So that was a Monday, Monday, July 30th, 1900. So on that day, Mads came home with just like a blaring headache. He just came home and he was just in so much pain. According to Bell, she gave him some quinine powder and he went to go lay down. Now at the time, quinine would have been like a fairly common remedy to have mm-hmm. around, even though now it's not recommended for any kind of like therapeutic use. She gave him the quinine and told him to go to bed, mm-hmm. sleep it off. Now a little while later... Bell summons this nearby doctor, Dr. Miller, and is like, come quickly. Mads is not conscious. When the doctor arrived, he found Mads's lifeless body in his bed. At first, Bell described the situation of like, okay, he came home with this horrible headache. I gave him the quinine. The doctor is like, do you have the label of the quinine that you gave him? And she's like, oh, I threw it away in like the flurry of all of it. So Dr. Miller is suspicious right away. Mm-hmm. And he actually kind of right away stated that he thought that the the way that it went down sounded very consistent for strychnine poisoning. Oh. Yeah. But then Mads' regular doctor, his family doctor, stepped in and said that he had been treating Mads for an enlarged heart. Okay. And that he thought the death was due to heart failure or a stroke. Um, and, and basically, yeah, and, okay. right. Like the headache and a stroke and like it parses. Right. So because it kind of parsed and the, the point of view of the family doctor was kind of privileged over the guy that was just like the nearest doctor in town. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And because of that, no autopsy was done and it was just mm-hmm. kind of accepted that that's what happened to Mads. So because it was July 30th. Oh no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, it's just like adding like little things or adding up, Belle. I know. It's just a lot of red flags. Mm -hmm. flags. Do you ever see that meme of like the guy wearing the scarf of red flags? (laughs) We should put that on our social media. We need to put Belle's picture in that and have it. Oh my God. Can you like Photoshop her face onto it? I will do my very best. Actually, I'm going to put that in my phone as a reminder to my. We're so obnoxious. Okay. I love it. All right. I actually have tears of laughter. Okay, hold on. It was July 30th, right? So uh, Bell was able to make away with cashing out both of those insurance policies. What that amounted out to, uh, some of the, some say $8,000, some say $9,000. I just split the difference and said it was $8,500. Okay. Um, In today's money, that's $260,000. Shit. That's major. So what motivated Bell to take that money and move to LaPorte, Indiana, is not totally known. 
my theory is that, so at the time, Laporte was like a really, really small farming community. Mm-hmm. And it did have a, a pretty heavy Norwegian and Scandinavian presence. Okay. So part of me kind of thinks like, maybe some eyebrows were starting to raise in Chicago. She wanted a fresh start. And then maybe there was also this appeal of like, now she has money, but she knows farming really well. That's how she grew up. Yeah. You know? So I could see that being like, I'm alone now. I have to figure out like what I can do for myself. Yep. Um, and this kind of feels like something I know. Right. Well, and plus like that payment, plus I'm assuming selling the house in Austin would have mm-hmm. been a good chunk of money. Yeah. She had a lot of money. So that's kind of my guess. And then she, the property that she bought has an interesting history in its own right. It was actually a brothel prior to her purchase of the property like the the big house was used as a brothel so i also kind of thought like okay the size of the property is so big that she probably also thought she could make some money with borders yeah and that had been a way actually that she and mads had made a little bit of side income in the house in austin was having occasional borders um usually other norwegian immigrants again it's like a really kind of tight-knit immigrant community you know so, so she buys this big, beautiful farm in Laporte, which is nestled in northwest Indiana's beautiful countryside, <laughs> which I love very much. And I know people are like, probably like, uh, it's just Indiana countryside. But when you're from Detroit, Michigan, Indiana countryside is really beautiful. You're laughing at me. I'm laughing at you. <laughs> so, so Belle knew, and she moved herself to Laporte. <laughs> so now in Laporte she um, now whether or not Peter Gunnis was already in Laporte or if she kind of sort of brought him over not totally known but Peter Gunnis had formerly been actually one of their boarders at their house in Austin so she kind of knew him already and Peter Gunnis was another Norwegian immigrant, and he had actually been very recently widowed. He had a seven-month-old baby daughter, Jenny. Same name as the foster daughter, not the same Jenny. So he had a seven-month-old baby daughter, and his previous wife had died in the childbirth of that. So he had the baby, and then he had another daughter, Swanhilda. He worked as um, a butcher and a hog farmer by trade. So, you know, Belle bought the farm, and that makes Peter Gunnis like a really good kind of eligible bachelor. So I just want to take a second to just kind of appreciate Peter Gunnis for a second. He is an immigrant. He is moving to a new country to start a new life. He's an incredibly hard worker, like works with his hands, dirty work. He's a butcher. He's a hog farmer. He's a widower, and he's a single dad. Yeah. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. I just want to appreciate that for a minute. That's a lot. <laughs> so there's all this narrative about, like, how did Belle Gunnis, like, snag these men? There's, like, all these accounts where people say, like, she looked like a toad. She was so ugly. What? She this, she that. I know. And I'm like, it's so, like, misogynistic. It drives me bonkers. And it kind of especially came to light when it came to Peter Gunnis because he was beautiful. So he was this, like, big, hunky Norwegian Viking of a man. He had this big, lustrous, blonde mustache. Girl, you have such a type. Um, As a brief anecdote, because it's not really that important, but there are, like, some accounts of Belle's proficiency as a lover. Oh. So maybe that's how she got the menses. She was a good cook 
and she was a good lover. So that's how I get my men, right? <laughs> so any oozles. Um, so like I said, like that's a lot, and I could imagine just fe- if I'm Peter Gunnis, I'm like whether or not I was like butt crazy in love with Belle. I just need some help, you know. Yeah. So they got married on April 1st of 1902. And this is when Belle uh, became known as Belle Gunnis, which, of course, we know her as today. Mm. So newlywed bliss did not exactly last very long. Okay. Because um, one day Peter left Belle. Of course, you know, he's working. He's a butcher. He's a hog farmer. He's doing all this stuff. Belle's taking care of the kids. His baby daughter, Jenny, died while in Belle's care. Oh. Yeah. So a week after they got married. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Was she ill at all before? Or was it just... Well, that's the question. So no inquest was done that I could find any evidence of. And Mm -hmm. it sounded like it was just kind of chalked up to another case of infant mortality. They often would cite like colitis or um, hydrocephaly. Like these kind of somewhat random like... Causes. Colitis and hydrocephaly are two completely different reasons for death. I know, I know. But when you look at a lot of the infant deaths at this time, like mm-hmm. that's the terminology that they would use. Like it was colitis, it was hydrocephalus. That's so, so weird. Yeah, it just kind of seems like... Had they coined the term SIDS at that point? Nowhere near. Oh, okay. That was like, okay. I think not even like... 50s? Until it, I think it was a 70s thing, actually. Oh, okay. We can fact check that. But um, I don't think... So that was just like so far in the future. And so that's kind of how I saw it, though. Like this kind of word salad as far as infant causes of death. Like now we know those things to be sudden infant death syndrome, which is still basically a fancy way of saying we don't know why this happened. We're getting closer and closer getting there thank god because it's so sad i know so you know this happened a week into the marriage and i can imagine there's not really like a lot of account out there about like what life was like just kind of in the wake of that but it wouldn't be a whole lot of time until peter gunnis himself met his own untimely death Mm -hmm. in december of that year bell gunnis told this account of what happened. So one day in December, Peter was reaching for something on a tall shelf and disrupted both a pot of boiling brine as well as a meat grinder, which fell on his head and caused his death. Okay. Yeah. So when police came to respond to it, Belle was like hysterical. And that's every police officer that came to see the scene would say the same thing, that she was like, losing her mind and that Jenny was also losing her mind because she did bring Jenny the older girl with her now for friends that like knew Peter Gunnis this just did not make sense so what I didn't say earlier that's important is that Peter's actually kind of a lot younger than Belle she was 43 by this time mm-hmm. and Peter was 30 um, and Which 43 is pretty old in 1902 it is yeah and that's I think a really interesting part of her story as well that like a lot of her craziest times were actually like in her older than middle age years like in her late 40s so she's 43 peter is 30 he's strapping he's strong he's tall i'm not just gushing there's a point here he's (laughs) he's 
steady. He's super smart. He's not clumsy. So the friends and the mm-hmm. neighbors are hearing like he died because he tripped on a pot of boiling water and a sausage grinder. And they're like, no, mm-hmm. that makes no sense. Mm-hmm. And so people were very, very skeptical of that. So the coroner was also in agreement with people that it just, it wasn't quite adding up. Mm-hmm. So that would be made even more suspicious when at school, Jenny actually was overheard telling a friend that her mama killed her daddy with a meat cleaver. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. So a coroner's inquest was called. Now a coroner's inquest back in those days was like a baby version of a grand jury. Yeah. So uh, this was kind of actually Bell's like first real scrape with the law, which I think is actually kind of interesting to take a second to think about. So mm-hmm. what's that face? I'm just like, the red flags, Bell. The red flags. I know, right? The coroner's inquest comes in. It's like a baby grand jury. And in the course of that, basically her saying that to a friend became kind of like a linchpin in that potential case because while Peter's wounds would have been consistent with a, like a blunt force trauma situation, it also would have been consistent with Bell's story that something fell on his head. Yeah. So what Jenny said was really the only thing that implicated Bell. Right? Literally the only thing, yeah. Yeah. So uh, when Bell took the stand, she told that story again with the brine and the sausage grinder and all that. And then Jenny told the exact same story. To an extent that, like, when you read the transcript, you would know it now to say, like, wow, this kid was really coached. Yeah. But that's all they had, right? So they basically had to kind of call off the inquest because there was nothing else to go on. Now, at this time, this is also one of these things where we don't know if this baby was naturally Bell's. At the age of 43 in today's days, definitely plausible. In those days, eh. But if it's true, then she was actually pregnant at the time of this coroner's inquest and she was pregnant at, at Peter's death. If it's not true, then she just kind of took this baby from somewhere. But either way you slice it, baby Philip was said to be born somewhere in May of 1903. Okay. Now neighbors would say that he was kind of like an oddly mature looking baby for a newborn. But Mel Gunnis was six feet tall. Like, and, you know. So babies grow bigger and more mature in six-foot-tall tummies, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, Peter Gunnis is a tall drink of water. Belle Gunnis is a substantial person. He might have a big baby. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. But whether or not, it's, it kind of becomes part of, like, the folklore of Belle yeah. Gunnis. Like, yeah. And that's where it gets hard to separate, like, the real story and the folklore kind of it, of it. Yeah, that, that's what it really feels like with this is I know a lot about Belgunis, but it's a lot of myth. Right. You know? Yeah. It's like, you know a lot about Belgunis, but do you know a lot about Belgunis the person or Belgunis yeah. the story? Yeah. You know? So I don't know if baby Philip was, was hers naturally or not, but baby Philip appeared in 1903. At that time, after the coroner's inquest was essentially thrown out, she was able to net Peter's life insurance benefits which were somewhere in the neighborhood of what would today be 90 to 120k and again different accounts have different dollar amounts but it was between three and four thousand dollars which converts to between 90 and 120 yeah so 
at the time, you know, she she pulls in this money and people had kind of their eyebrows up as far as Belle at this point, right? Yeah. So Peter's brother, Goost, was very suspicious and he actually came down uh, from Wisconsin to kind of adopt Swanhilda mm-hmm. away from her stepmother because he was worried for Swanhilda's safety Yeah, fair. in that home. Yeah. And actually while he was there, he would later say that he was kind of struck by Belle's like steely demeanor and that she actually proposed to him to stay. Okay. And, yeah. And that when he said no, he would say that he was struck by the doleful look in her eyes and that it shook him. Interesting. Yeah. So this is where things start to really kind of fall off the rails completely in <laughs> Bell Gunnis land. Okay. Yeah. This is where so, the myth really starts rolling. Exactly. Yeah. So for a while, she ran the farm kind of by herself. And again, she was like a big, strong, tough woman. And she mm-hmm. knew how to do all this farm work. So she did it for herself uh, for a, a bit. You know, but it was a big farm, and it's a hog farm. And it was sad. Like, one thing I read said that she was able to, like, lift up a 400-pound hog and, like, swing it on her back like a sack of potatoes. Jesus. Like, that's badass. I aspire to that. We're not romanticizing. I'm romanticizing the idea of being able to throw 400 pounds over my shoulder. I know. I know. I want to be one of those people that can like, you know, like that thing where you get to move those like giant tires and that's like an athletic event. I want to be that person, (laughs) you know, and that I mean, that's the Highlander events are kind of like the coolest thing in the entire world. And I want to go to them and I want to be a Highlander. Exactly. Exactly. Follow like the will of my people. (laughs) (laughs) exactly so like honestly the way that i kind of see bell gunnis in those days is like madame trunchbull from matilda yes oh my god perfect imagery yeah like that's the mental picture i have of her so she ran that farm by herself for a while but she um did start to post wanted ads for a farmhand this is where again things start to kind of fall off the rails And this is where some of these, like, names and dates, there are differing accounts. So just know that, like, you know, this is the most accurate that I could kind of collate from all the research and all the uh, primary sources. So the first one was this guy, Olaf Lidbo. He came to answer the want ad and was hired. And some accounts would say that he and Belle had more than a professional relationship. Okay. He actually wrote a letter to his dad back home in Norway that he might be getting married soon. So it's thought that he and Belle were, you know, doing it. So <laughs> so that's kind of going on for a little bit. And then all of a sudden, Belle asks her neighbor, Chris Christofferson, for some help on the farm. Mm-hmm. And Chris is like, why do you need my help? You have Olaf. Bell told him that Olaf had just up and left in the middle of a, a job plowing the corn. And uh, she kind of gave different people different excuses about where Olaf went. Um, she told one person that he went to go see the World's Fair in St. Louis. She told somebody else he went back to Norway. In any case, Olaf Lindbo was never seen again. So the next one she hired was this guy, Henry Gerholt, who had a very similar story, like another uh, immigrant that, you know, looking for work, all that stuff. 
Um, and he would write letters to his loved ones about how much he loved being on the farm, how well he was being treated. And it was just like a beautiful, beautiful farm by all accounts. Yeah. Um, lots of shade trees and orchards and just gorgeous. So, and he was being treated really well. It was often said that Belle would actually have her farm hands like stay in a room in her house rather than uh, like in the barn where they would kind of traditionally live. And that that was kind of part of what like enabled some of these sexual relationships to happen, mm-hmm. allegedly. So now all of a sudden, once again, Belle goes off looking for Chris Christopherson because Henry allegedly suddenly quit his job. And they were in the middle of like uh, the time that you would sow and stack oats. And so she needed the help. Yeah. So um, Chris was like, what the heck? And she told him that Henry got sick and that he was leaving for Chicago because he couldn't handle the work physically. But he had left a bunch of his stuff behind. And Chris thought that was weird because... um, he would later see Belle wearing like this beautiful fur coat that he thought was Henry's. And it was kind of suspicious that somebody would move back to Chicago without like a good winter coat. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm guessing like inexpensive. Yeah. I mean, it was fur. Like, so this is about when the time that when Belle's ads changed from wanted ads to, uh, of the lonely hearts genre. Oh, mm-hmm. So she started being a little more honest with herself. She did. She totally did. (laughs) So there are a couple of her ads out there that kind of survive the archives. This one's my favorite. It says, and so it's also important to say at this point that when she posted ads, she was specifically putting them in a lot of the Scandinavian newspapers only. So she was looking for for people from Norway and, and Sweden and, and these places, Finland, you know. Mm-hmm. So she was advertising in those newspapers. She wasn't advertising in the Chicago papers or the South Bend Tribune. She was advertising in the papers that other immigrants would be reading. It's interesting because I would think that that is a relatively more insular community that would be harder to hide in. You would think, but where she was posting those papers was also really widespread. Minneapolis, Wisconsin, okay. Illinois, okay. Pennsylvania, sense. Ohio. I mean, these guys are coming from every All of Midwest. All of the Midwest. It was a whole mid-ratchet affair. <laughs> so let me read you this, this one ad, okay? Because I love this. Yes. Or this personal ad. She says, personal, comely widow who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in LaPorte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well provided with a view of joining ventures. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with a personal visit. Triflers need not apply. Mm-mm. No triflers. No trifling. Can I take a moment to say my favorite running theme on this show is when we read dating like I know or tinders or whatever it's my favorite thing that we do me too too. (laughs) it's like it's the human condition man like it is this is a tale as old as time so what's also interesting about these ads for me is that this ad is the one that she ran most frequently from what I could tell but she had another one where she was much more explicit about saying, uh, you need to come with $1,000. Oh, okay. I think that's just kind of an interesting thing to note as well. And a lot of people, as you're going to find out, were willing to do that. Yeah. I, I wonder what it was back then. Well. That people would just be cool with that. 
Well, okay, so this is kind of what I've avoided a little bit because I feel like it's kind of a reductive take on Belgunis, but a lot of what you'll hear and see is that Belgunis was just, like, money-hungry from day one. Mm-hmm. And that she would just do anything for wealth and just she was greedy and she would kind of amass this wealth. I think when you look at her childhood and the type of poverty that she was growing up in, mm-hmm. it just, that's another way of looking at, like, maybe it wasn't, like, this intensive greed, but more a fear of scarcity that at least kind of started the whole thing. Maybe not where it ended, but yeah. I wonder if that's kind of where it started. I kind of wonder if that was what was motivating a lot of these people to answer these ads like if there was one thing that people knew about Belle Gunness was that she was rich yeah and she had this like very um it wasn't just a farm it was a farm and an orchard there's oats there's corn there's pigs I mean it's like it's an enterprise right yeah so I could see being like you're a struggling immigrant you don't necessarily know if your work is going to be consistent, you know, mm-hmm. and then here's the promise of this farm yeah, and, and this rich widow, it's survival, you know? Yeah. I, I guess, I guess when I think about it, it's not that odd when we live in a world of like sugar daddy, sugar Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. And in some ways, like, triflers need not apply, and her ad feels like the equivalent of, like, don't take me to Applebee's. (laughs) 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 So, um, with regards to these ads, Belle got a lot of response. A lot of response. The mailman would say that she got at least one letter a day, often up to four or five letters a day. Wow. Okay. That's a lot. So one of the first men to come was this guy, George Berry, and he came from Tuscola, Illinois, and he came with what what would today be about $50,000. Damn. He was not trifling. Mm Mm-mm. He also came to Bell's Farm and was never seen again. Oh, shit. Yes. Next up was Christian Hilkman, and he traveled from Dover, Wisconsin. So again, like these guys are also coming from a large distance. Mm-hmm. He actually sold his own small farm in Dover, brought the cash that he got from that sale to his new home in Laporte, and was also never seen again. Jesus. Yeah. Emil Tell, who by all accounts was a hot Swedish bachelor from Kansas, told people that he was moving to Indiana to marry a rich widow. He was also never seen again. Oh, my God. She's going through them. She really is. She really is. This one breaks my heart, and you'll find out more why later. Ali Budsberg was a widower, like Belle, uh, an older guy than a lot of the other ones that answered her ads. I think he was in his 50s. He sold his farm in Iola, Wisconsin, uh, to his sons, bid them goodbye, and moved to Laporte, and was never seen again. Oh, my God. Yeah. John Moe was another Norwegian immigrant, uh, and he had been living in Elbow Lake, Minnesota. He traveled over 600 miles with the equivalent of $28,000 in cash to meet Belle. Is there any suspicion coming on her? Because, like, I'm also hearing these men are coming from a long way away. It would take a long time for anybody to catch on that they were missing. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't be known in town, so it's not like anybody in town would ask about them. 
Exactly. So people in town did start to notice that there were just like a lot of extra men kind of coming and going from Belle's farm. Mm-hmm. And she told people that they were all of her cousins visiting from Norway. So it would be natural if they were your family visiting from out of town that they would come and go. Right. Yeah. And then to your other point, like it would take a while. Like you're thinking about the speed of mail in the turn of the century. Right. Yeah. So we're not talking oh, somebody was missing for a few days. I haven't heard from my dad in a few days. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't necessarily be suspicious until you hadn't heard from your dad in a year, you know? So back to John Moe, he was interesting because he was a little bit uh, flashy with his money. Like a lot of the other guys that came just stuck with being at Bell's farm and they weren't really like talking to other people in town. John Moe did actually kind of like venture into Laporte and told people that he was here to to marry her and help her pay off her mortgage. Uh, so here's my other question. Would they, like, come to her home and she would just kill him right off? Or did they stay a while? Did they, like, go through town? Like, how fast is this all happening? Do we have any clue? We don't have a much of a clue. Okay. We basically know that um, between the time that Peter Gunnis died in late 1902 and when everything kind of came to a head in 1908, that's when all of these things happened with all these different men. Okay. Now, what, um, what was often kind of seen as the run of events was that maybe they would be there for like a week or so. Mm-hmm. The only way that we know that is basically through John Moe's story because he was seen in town for sure, we know, for a week. Oh, okay. Damn. Yeah. Yep. So after that week or so, no one ever saw John Moe again. All right. But his name is going to be important later. Okay. In the meanwhile, she was also hiring people to come over and dig large holes that she said were for garbage in her land. Suspicious? Mm. Sus. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. That's why I'm not cool. Um, (laughs) None of us are cool. We're in our 30s. So, yeah, I mean, it is pretty sus. And she would have people come over and, like, dig these holes in her pig pen, basically, in her, like, hog pen. And at about the same time, another Norwegian immigrant came to Bell's Farm. His name was George Anderson. He brought his entire life savings. We don't know quite how much that was, but it was his entire life savings. He brought that to Bell's farm um, and, of course, was never seen again. So at this point, Bell kind of has another problem growing, and it's Jenny. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, So Jenny's getting older. She's getting more aware. She had two other kids, like... Yeah, Lucy and Myrtle were little. Were they grown? Oh, no. They so they were little. In 1908, okay. they were 9 and 11. Oh, okay. I see. Got it. But Jenny was getting older. She was 16-ish at the time that I'm talking about right now. Okay. So she's 16-ish, and um, she's grown to be a very, very beautiful young woman. She's got this, like, thick, gorgeous blonde hair. Um, you see a picture of her, and it's like, whoa, I want to steal the hair off of your head. It's so beautiful. <laughs> smart she's chatty she's just kind of delightful and she and one of a local farmhand not on bell's farm but uh, this guy worked on another farm she fell in love with this guy emil greening and he loved her back and that kind of presented what people will say is another problem for bell because we know from the past that jenny did 
you know, at least at one time confide in somebody that she saw something go down between Peter and Belle. Okay, yeah. So now she's got a boyfriend, and um, the thought is that now Belle has another reason to be worried about Jenny talking because Mm -hmm. she may well do that. She's 16, she's got a boyfriend, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, She's getting to be marriageable age for sure in that time. So Emile and Jenny are, you know, kind of dating and courting and, and whatever. And one day in what felt to Emile like out of nowhere... Jenny told him that she was going to be sent off to college in California and they agreed to write to each other. Okay. And uh, Emile would faithfully write to her for months and never get a response. Oh, Emile! I know. I know. He felt like it was an unrequited love. Mm -hmm. And uh, he moved on and got married and everything. And um, there's like one anecdote that says that um, she Belle ran into him in town and told him, like, oh, well, I told Jenny you got married anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Just fishy stuff. Mm -hmm. So at this point, you know, we've got this, like, revolving door of men kind of coming and going from the farm. Jenny is now allegedly off at at college or at a seminary. Some Some accounts will say college, some will say seminary. At this point, Belle is in need of another farmhand. Now, instead of placing another ad in the paper, she kept seeing this guy around town, Ray Lamphere. Mm-hmm. Ray Lamphere, his dad was like a former politician and school teacher, like kind of a prominent person in the community that ha- had developed a really bad drinking problem and like drank his family into obscurity, essentially. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how Ray Lamphere grew up. Yeah. And Ray Lamphere was seen as kind of like a town ne'er-do-well, kind of in the same vein. He was an alcoholic. He mm-hmm. had like like minor brushes with the law, you know, little petty thefts and like public drunkenness. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. He had some crazy eyes. (laughs) No, I want to look him up. Oh, crazy eyes. Yeah. Crazy eyes, big mustache. So I just think it's interesting at this point that Belle was hiring somebody to work at her farm that had a profile in town. And that, Mm -hmm. that's why it feels notable. Like, you know, these other guys, like, they were coming in from out of town to answer her want ad to be a farmhand, and then these other guys that were, like, allegedly her cousins and all this. Frey Lamphere was a local. Like, he was a yeah. little boy. So I just I think, think it's kind of interesting. Kind of letting her guard down a little bit. Yeah, that's that's kind of my theory, just that it was letting her guard down a little bit. One thing I read said that she was just, like, struck by his handsomeness. And yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I know, right? Um, and that she just kind of like had her sights set on him. I don't know about that because he didn't have money. He didn't have like a, a prominent title or a, he wasn't going to like uplift her status in society at all mm-hmm. by joining up, you know? So I don't know. I don't know if I understand the motivation. We do know that he was like a skilled carpenter, a good handyman, was probably really good at like a lot of mechanical issues that you'd have at a farm, you know? Do you think maybe, like, she's been doing this for so long. I mean, it's been, what, like, seven men by now? Yeah. She's just kind of getting a little bit more impulsive and not thinking things through as much. Yeah. And Jenny is gone now. Mm-hmm. So there's not that, like, internal set of eyes anymore either. Yeah. And I think that plays a not small part in all this, too. Mm-hmm. Honestly. But, okay, so she hires Ray, right? She hires him to be a farmhand. But they connected. There were sparks. 
there were sparks. Like they're not only connected as lovers, which we kind of knew was going to happen, but also as friends. Like they legit liked each other. They drank together. They uh, played games together. They had a friendship. So this also kind of becomes the part of her story where now she has potentially like a real partner in crime. I was going to say, if she hadn't killed all those people, I would have been like, good for you, Belle. I know, right? Like, oh, you're lovelorn and going through all these things that just nothing works out. But like, no, you murdered them. So no. But they became close and uh, they would actually kind of like go out on dates in town and they had a, a companionate relationship. Okay. So that also was kind of a turning point. However, that did not necessarily mean that Belle was faithful to Ray. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. What's interesting to me about this is that both of the men at this point of the story, Ray and this dude I'm about to introduce, are different from everybody else in Belle's world. Okay. So while Belle was kind of like, you know, going around with Ray, kind of whatever their relationship was, and again, he was staying in her house and all that, she was actually writing letters back and forth with this eligible bachelor from South Dakota named Andrew Helgeline. Those letters were different because instead of exchanging a couple of letters, oh, I'm going to come to your farm, their correspondence went on for 18 months. Oh, wow. Yeah. So for Belle, that was really different. (laughs) Now, the letters were, for the time, like mildly steamy and promised him some sweet, sweet loving. Were they anything like James Joyce's? Not even close. (laughs) But I mean, like same spirit. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Maybe not the same execution. Nobody has it. Under- nobody's got it quite like James Joyce. Nobody, nobody's got it quite like him. So, so here's where I think it also is interesting to point out, like Helgeline's background a little bit. He was actually an ex-con. He had been previously in jail for, I believe, a bank robbery, and then upon his release, he basically like found a new life as a farmer mm-hmm. in South Dakota. So um, because he's a farmer, she kind of told him like, okay, Laporte is a really great place to be as a farmer. It's beautiful. We've got this great land. It's super fertile land, all that stuff. She laid it on really thick in these letters because meanwhile, Andrew was kind of putting her off a little bit. Like Mm -hmm. he wouldn't commit to when he would come out. So she like the language in her letters with him would kind of like ratchet up and she would kind of praise him for being this like exemplar of Norwegian manliness. She, you know, she was bombing him. She did. She was love bombing him. And she was like, I don't know if I deserve you, but please come. She also told him you're like the hilt of manliness. <laughs> she would also like beg him to come promising, promising him like wonderful f- foods from Norway. Like, you know, it's been a long time since you've been back home in Norway. Let me warm you up with this wonderful Norwegian food. And that kind of sounds like kind of whatever. But again, I think kind of put yourself in the headspace of you're so far away from home. Mm-hmm. I don't think that South Dakota had quite like the same bustling Scandinavian immigrant community that we would have kind of further out east mm-hmm. in Indiana and Wisconsin and whatnot. I think it it could sound kind of whatever, like it's just dinner, but I think if you imagine you're homesick, if you imagine you're alone, I mean, all I want right now in this pandemic is a good 
Middle Eastern meal from back home. Honest Aww. to God. Like that is, if I could have one thing for Christmas, it would be a shishtauk platter oh from my, my favorite restaurant back home. So Aww. like that's how, so I could imagine like that same feeling yeah. from Andrew, or at least that's what Belle is hoping that he's feeling. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of where I'm at with that. I don't want to like belittle what pull that she thought that would have. She also, however, asked him to bring, uh, have all your money like converted to cashier's checks or um, like traveler's checks. Yeah. And if you bring any cash, make sure you sew it into your underwear and we'll grow this beautiful life together. <laughs> and I'm like, that's so random. <laughs> like, okay. Like that's where like her charm ends. Yeah. She's trying to like charm him and lay it on thick and then, Please remember to sew your cash into your underwear. Exactly, exactly. So it's like she's trying to lay it on thick. (laughs) And like in that vein, I want to read you just a snippet from one of her letters to Andrew. And again, this correspondence is going on for 18 months. She says, I do not think a queen could be good enough for you. And in my thoughts, you stand highest above all high. And I will not let anything stand in the way of my doing anything for you. Yeah, she is laying it on Jesus. Yeah. And I I, I don't know what's different about Andrew. Because she didn't do that for any of the other ones, did she? Not that we can find. And he didn't have an exorbitant degree of wealth compared to these other guys that she had managed to get, you know, get out to her farm. So I don't know what's different about him, but something struck her different. All right. Yeah. I mean, he was cute. But, you know, a lot of it was Peter Gunness. Yeah, he was. Uh, So, (laughs) (laughs) so, you know, she initially expected him to come in like the late fall of 1906. Okay. But he didn't come. October came and went. November came and went. Winter is coming. He's still not there. She's urging him to come, you know, again, to bring all of his money. The other thing that she asked him to do was to not tell anybody. Where okay. you're going, just come. And she would basically spend the next year, like, almost kind of downright begging him to come in these letters. Wow. You know, and promising him all of this, all the things I've already talked about, like food and love and the She's farm and bad. the bad. She's got it real bad for Andrew. And I just, I wish I knew it was different. Mm-hmm. But uh, we just don't know necessarily. But she's doing all this all while kind of carrying on whatever her relationship is with Ray, which I kind of see as kind of a friends with benefits kind of situation. Yeah, yeah. He's working for her. They're their companion. They have a really good time. The other thing that I haven't really spent as much time talking about that I just want to drop as a note now is that the other thing that kind of humanizes Belle, at least to my mind, is how much she loved kids. Okay, see, this is, I guess what threw me off when you first said that because the way that I know her in my mind is in addition to being like a black widow yeah is the suspected babies and all of that what was she like as a mom so what's interesting about that is that the baby farming theory didn't really come into play until after the murder farm okay was unearthed so um, as a mom, by accounts that are actually on record, I think that's really important to specify. You've got like the folklore of Belle Gunness, mm-hmm. and then you've got what's actually out there. By the accounts that actually existed, she was a good mom. 
Okay. She was very maternal. She spent a lot of time with her kids. She was very, like, present and attentive with them. So I think back to that, like, alleged pregnancy and, and beating and miscarriage, and I kind of wonder, like, if that was true, if there's, like, this symbolism there that, like, men equals brutality, children equals innocence, preserve innocence, you know? Yeah. I kind of wonder if that's a little bit of her story a little bit mm-hmm. like again she's highly culpable she's freaking terrifying but like what's the profile that we're creating exactly and because yeah. like what would otherwise be the motive for bringing in kids and she was not using them for labor jenny was not used as labor okay okay that was another question that i had so the kids weren't used yeah. for labor no and kids are expensive right like and she kept them fed she kept them in toys she kept them clothed by all accounts so i think that she that that was kind of an outlet for her humanity in a way and that everybody else was inhuman to her right yeah but i do think that the one thing that existed in her heart was kids interesting it was like her and babies against the world Exactly. That's kind of my theory. That's but, kind mm, of my theory. But mm. yeah, I know. I know. I know. It, it's also feeling like once they get bigger, she doesn't have that same care. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And Jenny, you know, was the only one of her kids that would see adolescence. Yeah. So we don't have a ton to go on as far as like. There's not other than what Jenny said about what happened between Peter and Belle. She never made other complaints about how she grew up. Okay. You know, it could be that she didn't have anywhere to take them, you know? Yeah. And say her life was also cut short. So, right. Exactly. So, you know, we don't know the whole story there, but there's something else later that I just, it just gives me some pause. All right. All right. So, finally, 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 (sighs) Andrew shows up. Uh, finally, I hope it's everything that Belle dreamed of. Well, it kind of was, but it was not everything that Ray dreamed of. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Andrew shows up uh, on January 2nd, 1908, so just after the new year. And what Belle didn't know at the time was that uh, against her wishes, he did bring a bunch of money, but not all of his money. And he told his brother that he was leaving, not where that he was going, but he did tell his brother, Asla, that he was leaving Yeah, and that he would be back in about a week. So the way I take that was he was kind of kind of testing the waters with Belle. Okay. That's kind of my take, but you I know. can see that. Yeah. Yeah. It I sounds like it he is- had some reservations. So yeah. yeah. And he was kind of playing it a little bit more cautiously. Like, he did bring a lot of money, and he brought some cashier's checks and traveler's checks, but he didn't bring everything he had. I do think it's kind of interesting that he decided to come in from South Dakota to northern Indiana in January and say that he was only going to be here for a week. Huh. Yeah. It's a long Um, way to travel for a week. In bad weather. In bad weather from South Dakota, Jesus. Yeah. 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 So... I just think that's interesting, but could be inconsequential. Could have been a mild year. So (laughs) who knows? So as you can imagine, uh, Andrew showing up was not um, particularly something that Ray was expecting or excited to have happen. (laughs) So when Andrew came, Belle kicked Ray out of the house and told him that he was now going to be sleeping in the barn. 
Ah, yes. Ray. I know. So Ray is kicked out to the barn and Andrew takes over the room, the nice room in the house. So Ray is obviously thrown for a loop by that and he's upset. And then to add further insult to injury, one day the two guys just kind of were starting like a casual conversation, small talk kind of stuff. And Belle kind of caught them chatting and basically like told Ray that he was never allowed to talk to Andrew again. So, okay. Tell me about the look on your face right now. I'm just, I mean, none of this behavior should surprise me. And really it doesn't Mm -hmm. from what we know about Belle. But I'm like, damn, you created this situation and now you're like... I don't know. It it also just sounds like a really shitty, like, frat boy thing to do. Yeah, right? Like, don't talk to my side chick. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting, too. And, you know, and Ray, like, he's he's scorned at this point. Like, they had, like, a legit relationship. And suddenly he's chopped liver. Mm -hmm. And that did not feel too good. So... He, it sounds like he kind of goes along with it for a while. He stays in the barn. He continues work as a farmhand and he does Belle's bidding. I feel bad for Ray. I do too. Um, and oh, it, it gets real weird. So, okay. so Andrew is also different in the sense that Belle takes Andrew to town, mm-hmm. which again, like John Moe had gone to town against Belle's wishes. Belle took Andrew to Laporte. So again, like it's feeling different. And the first time that she took him into town, it was to cash his traveler's checks. Mm -hmm. And the locals were like, who the hell is this guy? And she's like, this is my man. Exactly. And so they go to the bank and there's this really interesting interaction between her and the bank teller when she's like, hey, cash these checks. And the banker is like, yeah, for sure. But it's going to take a few days because I have to verify the amounts with the bank Mm -hmm. in South Dakota. Right. You have to be able to clear a check before you can cash it. Right. So she like threw a fit and insisted that the money be available right away. And the banker was like, no, I can't do that. That was just kind of an interesting note. That was kind of one of the times that Belle's like fiery temper was visible in town. Um, mm. Yeah. So they came back to the bank a few days later before the banker told them the money would be ready. This interaction was a little bit different. Uh, it was January 14th. Andrew wasn't feeling super well. So Belle was kind of in caretaker mode. And the interaction was like a lot less fiery. Like they came in and she was like, where's our money? And the banker's like, it's not ready yet because I'm still waiting to hear from South Dakota. And they kind of took that as an answer at that point. Now, Andrew not feeling well. I put that in there just because we do know that poisoning is a part of Belle's track record at this Mm -hmm. point. So what um, we suspect, what we know that she poisoned her first husband. No, we don't know that she poisoned anybody because tox screens didn't exist in 1908. So... Uh. But I do kind of wonder, like, why wasn't he feeling too good? Yeah. Yeah. You know, could have been just a little cold or whatever. Could have been, you know. Maybe that good Norwegian food just didn't agree with him. Maybe. Who knows? So it's interesting that on that same day, however, that Andrew wasn't feeling well in town, Belle sent Ray Lamphere off to Michigan City, which uh, was like 15 minutes away now, mm-hmm. but, you know, a little bit of a different trek back then, to meet up with her cousin, John Moe, to buy a horse. Okay. 
you and I both know that John Moe was not her cousin. Mm-hmm. He's not in Michigan City. Mm-hmm. So she's sending Ray on a fool's errand. And she says, don't come back until the transaction is done. So when Ray came back after a few days, he's mad because, <laughs> like, he was sent on this ridiculous errand. Yeah. And this was kind of like, for Ray, kind of a last straw. Yeah. Like, their relationship is nothing like it used to be. And now you're sending me off to do your bidding. And there's not even, like, anything to get from it, right? Yeah. So this kind of starts a fiery legal battle between Ray and Belle that would go on for some time. So Oh, interesting. Yes. Ray was kicked out of the farm. But Bell wouldn't let him have any of his stuff. Then Ray files a complaint that he wants his stuff back and she won't let him get it. Mm-hmm. And then Bell fires back with a countersuit that he's trespassing on her property. So they kind of go back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. And then she actually files an affidavit that Ray was insane. An insanity commission, quote unquote, was called together to look into his sanity, which was intact. Yeah. Um, except for his eyes. Know. Right. Except for his crazy eyes. That was like a little, you know, sub note in the document. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was not successful. But what was successful um, is that she did end up having him arrested for trespassing on his land. This is, I mean, talk about tale as old as time. This just sounds like a shitty breakup story. It totally does, right? Like, just as, like, petty stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So we're now in February, March. Andrew was due back in South Dakota in about a week from when he got there in January 2nd. So Asla is starting to worry, right? And nobody knew where his brother had gone. So eventually he starts to snoop around Andrew's house. Mm-hmm. And he finds some of the letters between him and Belle. So he starts writing to Belle and is like, hey, where's my brother? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. So he writes her in March of that year. And on March 27th, he sent that first letter to her asking where Andrew was. Mm -hmm. And she wrote Asla back and said that Andrew had, you know, come and gone. He was here, but he left not totally sure where he went. Maybe Minneapolis, maybe New York. He talked about Chicago. He talked about going to go see another cousin, like somewhere else, whatever. Asla didn't buy it. Good job, Asla. I know. And he starts asking Bell for some proof. Like, show me more of his letters. Is he is he writing to you from wherever he is? Show mm-hmm. me those letters. Where is his stuff? And then Bell wrote back. So I love that all this is happening over letter. Oh, yeah. And she's like, this crazy guy, Ray Lamphere, destroyed all of Andrew's stuff. So I can't actually give you those letters. Sorry about it. So uh, she's like, sorry, bud. There's nothing to see. All that's going on. And she's just trying to throw off Asla. She's going through a series of litigations with Ray. All of this is just chaos, right? And by this point, we haven't seen Andrew in a, in, in a bit. Yeah. So, I'm going to flash this forward to April 27th, 1908. Remember the fire is April 28th. Lucy and Myrtle, the little girls, they're 9 and 11. They come to school super upset. They, um, that was out of character for them. Yeah. And their teacher asked them what was going on. And they said that their mother had beaten them. 
And that was also not something that they'd expressed before. Yeah. Again, by all other accounts, up until now, Belle Gunnis was a, a good mom. The teacher presses and is like, what happened? What happened? Mm-hmm. They tell this story about like we were um, playing and we were going to go down into the cellar of the house and mom saw us going down there and she got really mad and she yelled at us and she beat us for almost going into the cellar where they weren't allowed to go. Yeah. So, you know, the day kind of continues at school. During that, about the same time later that day, Belle was seen in town buying some things. She bought some new toys for her kids. Um, the, the shopkeeper asked, like, hey, what's the occasion? Is it, you know, figuring it was a birthday or something like that? Mm-hmm. And she said, like, no, I just wanted to do something nice for my kids. And she bought a train set. She was also spotted in town that day buying at least one can of kerosene. This brings us to the morning of April 28th when Joe Maxson woke up to smell the house burning down. Wow. Yeah. So back to that scene, okay? Like we get to the house burning down uh, in the cold light of day. You know, the police find the four bodies who was allegedly Belle headless and then clinging to her, the children. So there there were two bodies of children or three three it would be lucy myrtle and uh, philip who would have been and philip like okay. a two-year-old yeah yeah or a five-year-old now like i said before the body of the adult woman was headless yeah and the initial thought like i said was that the fire was so hot that it um incinerated her entire head mm. why that doesn't parse is the fact that there was still some tissue on the rest of that body as well as the bodies of the children. Yeah. 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 So to burn hot enough to destroy a skull is uh, really, really, really hot. And there would be no other like existing tissue and there was tissue. Mm -hmm. So uh, that does not quite stand. The other thing that doesn't quite stand that would come out later is that there was some examination, I'm going to talk more about that in a minute, that said that the skeleton that was found, the headless woman, would have been five foot two or five foot three. I mean, that's a huge difference. That's a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big difference. So there is some speculation that perhaps that body was not Belgonis. But at the time, what immediately ran in the papers and, and throughout the town was that Belle Gunness, like died heroically guarding her children in this fire. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what runs immediately. Now, that fire, news of that makes its way to Asla mm-hmm. in South Dakota. So he makes a trip out to Laporte pretty much immediately. Yeah. So uh, at the same time, people are like, just converging on the farm and Mm -hmm. you know police they're digging up stuff they're looking around all that they can't find any cause for the fire initially Mm -hmm. but not long after they did come out to say that it was an act of arson they did find the can of kerosene they knew they were looking at arson yeah their focus immediately shifted to ray lamphere so Oslo makes his way to town, like I said, right away. And 
people are, you know, rooting around the farm. And so Oslo meets up with Joe Maxson, who was that farmhand, and they're poking around, digging around. Some accounts will say that Asla asked, he was like leaving the farm and he had just a weird feeling. And he went back and asked Joe Maxson, have you ever been asked to dig any holes here? <laughs> Other accounts will say that Maxson kind of made a remark about digging holes in the hog pen. Either way, everybody was like, let's go check out the hog pen and see what's out there. Because there had to be suspicion about Bill around town. Just rumors. Yeah, and- 100%. 100%. So there's suspicion. And Asla has good reason to be suspicious, right? Like his brother mm-hmm. literally disappeared at this farm. And suddenly the place is, you know, in flames. So they start digging around where there's some soft spots in the dirt. And as they're digging around in the hog pen, they come to a very soft spot. And they dig. And very quickly they find a gunny sack. And through a hole in the gunny sack, they can see what looked like a human neck. So they called police over, and police took over the dig. The bag was tugged out of the ground, and inside of that bag was a human head and some other body parts in the bag. Now, the head was pretty grotesquely decomposed, Mm -hmm. but it still had some tissue to it, and Asla was right there. And so just, like, think about that moment for a second. Yeah. There are pictures of this head. It's horrifying, but there's enough left and Asla I think really poignantly said I was with him every day for 15 years together I would know him anywhere mm-hmm. and he was able to identify Andrew by the skull wow yeah or by the head I should say and back in those days like that kind of identification was like good enough for mm-hmm. everybody investigating so yeah. now we've got a butchered body and mm-hmm. it was butchered expertly Jeez. so they keep digging and digging and digging and they find body part after body part after body part most of them are looking like men and then as they're digging in another hole they find a small female skeleton with a thick thatch of blonde hair neighbors would say that that hair was unmistakably Jenny's so again, like that past identification at that time. Yeah. Now the press is running on the murder farm because yep. there's all these bodies coming up. And there's like this little kind of shack set up where they're staging all the bodies, like a makeshift morgue and everything. And uh, the murder farm becomes like a spectacle. So while this is happening, people are like setting up like snacks for sale um, what yeah they're selling postcards there are postcards out there of andrew hegelein's head literally oh my god yes there was somebody that was selling ice cream and he set up shop literally right next to one of the graves and was selling ice cream like at the gravesite. what the hell people yes yes so there was this like obviously grotesque fascination and people were coming in from all over like all over the midwest to see this happening and it's happening in real time like yeah digging up bodies while people are selling ice cream to spectators and it's children it's adults it's it's like a county fair it is i was just going to say like it feels like a circus like in that laporte museum they have the old postcards and like mm-hmm. there's just like it's insanity 
So I think that's just kind of an interesting note that, like, I think we think about sometimes true crime as this, like, modern fascination. Yeah, no, it's, it's not. not. And back then, like, the boundaries were such a different thing than they are now. Like, we would never just yeah. go to a site, right? Like, at the time of, like, finding a body, I'm not going to be like, let's get in the car, kids, and go, you know. Well, I mean, it's funny because I was, watch. I was thinking about, like, uh, the Evangelist family. Yeah. And yeah, people just walking through that house while police are doing their investigation and gawking. Totally. So it was a media circus. And I think like really poignantly what's also going on is that people are showing up to identify the skeletons of their loved ones. Yeah. So and I'm going to talk more about that in a second. So like I said, all that speculation, all eyes go to Ray Lamphier as the perpetrator of the arson. Now, Ray is like, I have an alibi. And uh, his alibi was that he was actually in bed with this woman, Elizabeth Smith, that he had been having an affair with. Elizabeth Smith is really interesting, just as a little side note, because she, um, at the time, was said to be about 70 years old. And she was a former slave that had moved to Laporte. Wow. um, To kind of, like, live out her days. And... In her youth, she was, like, the town beauty, and Mm -hmm. by this time, she's, like, 70, but um, she was kind of famous in town. That's fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so Ray's got interesting taste, too, and, like, controversial ladies. So he denies it. He has an alibi. Later on, he will tell a different story, Mm -hmm. and the story he tells is this, that Belle was starting to get freaked out that Oslo was coming, so... She told Ray to plant a female body in the house, remove her head to deter identification, and set the house on fire with the children inside. Now, Ray corroborated the use of kerosene uh, and also shared that he had helped Belle bury bodies in the hog pen. Wow, okay. That's a big story, right? Yeah. So he was arrested, obviously, and um, he, in that process, has also outed Elizabeth Smith as an accomplice. Now, he would not live for very long, actually. He died in jail about a year later of tuberculosis. Okay. So I think there's some contention about that confession because some accounts said that it was under police interrogation. Others said it was confession to clergy. So Mm. the truth of it is a little bit contested, I will say. Okay. So at the farm, it's body after body after body after body after body. The most conservative reports will say 11. The most um, liberal reports will say as high as 42. Wow, that's a huge difference. Okay. So all of these different people are, are showing up to the farm to try to identify their loved ones that were missing. Yeah. Um, so you remember Ollie Budsberg, the older gentleman mm-hmm. down, his sons traveled down and they uh, identified their father's skull based on uh, the fact that it still had his signature thick red handlebar mustache, which oh, I thought was geez. just kind of heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how they like ID'd their father. So before I kind of talk about some of the aftermath, I just want to kind of read through this list of names. Basically, these were all like missing Scandinavian men or bodies that were identified or theorized to be at the farm. Mm-hmm. So I just want to give these guys their due. So Ali Budsberg, Thomas Lindbow, 
Henry Gerhold, Olaf Svenderend, John Moe, William Minske, Herman Conitzer, Charles Edmund, George Berry, Christian Hilkfin, Charles Nyberg, John McJunkin, Olaf Jensen, Henry Bisgey, Edward Canary, Bert Chase, Thomas Peterson Line, uh, an anonymous man who wore a gold ring that said SB, George Bradley, TJ Tiefland, Frank Reidinger, Emil Tell, Lee Porter, John Hunter, George Williams, Ludwig Stoll, Abraham Phillips, Benjamin Carlin, Augustine Gunderson, Ali Olison, Linder Nicholson, Andrew Anderson, Johan Sorensen. Wow. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Yeah. So again, like not all of those are necessarily corroborated all the way. Yeah. But that is basically a combined list of bodies, men that we know made their way to the farm and did not make their way back out. Mm-hmm. Or people that said that they were going to report and never made their way back. Yeah. I'm apt to believe that they were all there. You think that it was they were all there? I do think so. Yeah. Okay. I do think so. I think um, there was one investigator or medical examiner or doctor who said that it would be like nearly impossible to tell you exactly how many bodies there were because there were so many like mismatched limbs. Yeah. And so what would kind of emerge as far as um, what she did physically was due in large part to the evidence that remained of Andrew Hegeline. Andrew Hegeline, again, was feeling sick that day in January, and that was the last day anyone saw him. His organs were sent off to a lab in Chicago or an examiner in Chicago, you know, Mm -hmm. stuff back then was a little bit different. But uh, the doctor who looked at it said that the appearance of the organs was consistent with poisoning. Mm-hmm. But he also, when they found the head, had a big wound right in the middle of the forehead. Mm-hmm. So the theory emerged that basically what she would do is she would get these men there and she would feed them that wonderful, mm-hmm. beautiful dinner. And she would poison them in the course of that dinner. And then if the poison didn't work, she would you know, administer that final death blow to Mm -hmm. the head just in case. The bodies were, like, systematically dismembered by the correct joints. Like, clearly somebody with experience butchering knew what they were doing. Joe Maxson also came out to say that the last day, that day in April, you know, Joe Maxson observed them having, like, a really, really beautiful family night together. And that Mm -hmm. has basically been seen as kind of like Belle's send-off to her kids, essentially. In that time in late April, Belle had also set up a will, which would bequeath her money to her children to be split between them. In the event that none of her children were living, the will bequeathed a large sum of money to an orphanage serving Norwegian and Scandinavian children in Chicago. Oh, wow. Okay. Which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Now, that orphanage did not accept her money. They didn't want it. It was to them blood money. Oh, wow. So even though it was a large amount of money, they didn't feel right taking it. So they did not take it. Yeah, okay, yeah. So what is crazy about the story of Belgunis is that everybody died, like, pretty soon thereafter. So, like, Ray mm-hmm. Lanfear, you know, he was arrested, he was in prison, he had that alleged confession. He dies, like, 
1909, tuberculosis, he's done. So we don't know the rest of that story. The only child that ever survived being with Belle Gunness was Swanhilda, who was taken uh, by her uncle mm-hmm. back up north. So, Good job, uncle. I know. Way to go, Goose. That's where I think, like, the legend of Belle Gunness comes in, right? Like, the whole story kind of died in the fire that day, mm-hmm. you know? And then the rest of it died in jail a year later. So now the fact of that female body... Yes. Is what I keep coming back to. Mm -hmm. There are basically like four theories about what happened to Belle. The first theory is that it was her in the fire. Uh, I don't buy that one. Yeah. So the only reason to buy that one at all is that the dentist in town said that he could identify his work no matter what. So dental records were not a thing, right? Like you wouldn't be able Mm -hmm. to see my teeth and say, yeah, that's Tommy's teeth. But the thought was that this dentist could identify his own work. Mm. And Belle had a lot of gold teeth. She had a lot of bridge work and stuff. So a bridge was found in the rubble of the fire that was consistent with a bridge that this dentist said he put into Belle's mouth not too soon before that. Okay. What gives me pause about that is that uh, the other gold teeth would survive a fire. Yeah. For one thing. For another thing, a bridge pops out of your mouth like mm-hmm. fairly easily. Like it wouldn't feel good, but you can take out a bridge yourself. Yeah. So just the bridge was found? Yes. Not the jaw, not... There was a jaw, but it didn't have any teeth in it. Okay, yeah, I don't buy it. Yeah, me neither. So... Another popular theory was um, that sometimes in Belle's like early days in Chicago, she would sign papers as Belle Hinckley, and there was a Belle Hinckley that surfaced in Chicago not too long after the fire. Oh, interesting. Yes. Genealogy would later prove that Belle Hinckley was Belle Hinckley and not Belle Gunness. Okay. So that theory... It still floats out there, but, like, one further step of an investigation will tell you that it's not true. Yeah. The other popular theory is that in 1931, a woman named Esther Carlson was prosecuted in California for multiple murders. She was also a very large woman, Mm -hmm. and she did have some facial features in common with Belgunis. So a lot of people think that Belgunis left you know, staged her death, made a deal with Ray Lamphere, ran away from California, and then couldn't resist her mur- murderous impulses and became Esther Carlson. For me, it's super interesting. When you look at their pictures side by side, it's interesting. They do look alike. The timeline does not line up. For Belle Gunness to be an active killer in 1931 and to look exactly as she did in 1908... I want to know what skincare she's using. Yeah, I'm looking at her. Belle has a much wider set jaw. She does, and her mouth is really wide. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. All right. I like that theory, but I don't think it parses. Yes. Yes. My theory, which I believe is the correct theory because it's my theory, <laughs> um, I cannot be persuaded that that body was Belle Gunness's. No. Belle Gunness was very tall. She was very substantial. And the doctor that looked at that skeleton said that that woman would have been 5'2", 5'3", max, mm-hmm. and maximum 120 pounds. There is no way you're going to confuse that with somebody who is between 5'8", and 6 feet tall. Mm-hmm. 
So like the way that I was thinking about it was like the weight is one thing, right? Like there's not really much flesh left and like you could look at wear and tear on joints and whatnot, but but she's broad too. It's not exactly. Yeah. And like if you and I died together, <laughs> which feels likely. Probably. Um, if you and I died together and there was nothing left of us to identify the difference between us, but our skeletons, the fact that you are five inches taller than me and like a foot wider than you and my shoulders it would be any everything that anyone would need to know to say that one's mick that one's tommy yeah so assuming that that doctor was correct you cannot tell me that a five foot two skeleton is interchangeable with a five foot nine skeleton yeah no it's not no there's no convincing me that no so what's your theory i think that bell did um Stage. She set up Ray Lamphere to set that fire. I think mm-hmm. she probably paid him off. Yeah. And I do think that she was a mom. And I don't know if that's just mom brain a little bit, but I think that she had Ray Lamphere acquire or that she acquired a body of a female. There were a couple of other female skeletons found on the property um, okay. that were not identified. And so it's it stands to reason that she you know, she wasn't above killing women. I think that she probably had that woman's dead body stage in her house. I don't think that she left her kids with a strange woman. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that she had the body stage in the house. I think she gave her kids that last good night. Uh-huh. I think she left that night before yeah. the, the blaze would go up. And I honestly think that she probably went somewhere like New York, uh-huh. somewhere big and lived out her days. Or she went to Norway. Somewhere where she could live in obscurity. Exactly. That's what I think. And I think it like going somewhere like New York or back home to Norway, she wouldn't stand out nearly as much. Yeah. You know, moving to another like small town with another big like Scandinavian population, you know, being the size that she was having kind of like the distinction of her looks that she had. I don't think that she would be dumb enough to go to Minneapolis, Chicago, Milwaukee. I don't think she would do that. Yeah. No, I People probably, it wasn't that long ago that she had moved out of Chicago, so I doubt she went back. Exactly. I do, I wonder if she poisoned the kids before the fire. Yeah, I think I, she probably did. Yeah, I think that she did. Yeah, that's what I think. I think that she probably wanted her kids to go gently. Yeah. Um, and I think that she staged a body in there. But also, Belle, you didn't have to do it. No, you didn't. You didn't have to do it. And that's the tragedy of Belle Gunness. So, like, she's notorious. She's got all of these nicknames. Mm-hmm. She's Hell's Belle. She's the Black Widow. She's Lady Bluebeard. She's Hell's Princess. I do love Lady Bluebeard. Me too. That's my favorite nickname for her. But, like, literally so many men died at her hands. Yeah. And her kids. And if you track it all the way back and you... And you do believe that the infant mortality issue was her murdering, then she's got a, a you know, a totality behind her that is unreal. Like, yeah. Yeah. Unreal. I mean, you said up to 43 bodies on that farm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, the whole baby farm idea kind of comes mm-hmm. back to play a little bit. Like, people theorized wildly about what was happening at this point. Oh, farm. yeah. And we have to remember, too, that the Midwest was, like, fresh off of H.H. Holmes as well. Yes. Yeah, so, I was thinking about that. Um, there was this, like, kind of cultural imagination around all the different possibilities. So one popular theory was that she 
was essentially running like a baby farm and was kind of an angel of death figure. Mm-hmm. Another was that her farm was like a cover for a crime syndicate in Chicago that was sending her bodies to bury. That's a little bit too fantastical than it needs to be. Yeah, it, it just doesn't quite parse. But people really latched on to that. And then investigators in Loport were like, no, like, let's be real here. She was luring these men to her farm. And she yeah. Was systematically murdering them. And again, like, this is what I keep coming back to is like, I just think it's really interesting that she was preying specifically on men that were from where she was from. Yeah. And I just think about her kind of like victimizing that vulnerability of being an immigrant in a new place. Mm-hmm. And it's poignant to me that she didn't go after a lot of townies or or people that were kind of established in the country. She was going after, you know, these immigrant men that were, I think, like seeking some version probably of the American dream, right? Mm -hmm. And she's luring them with like the the promises of home, like I'm a good Norwegian wife, I'm going to make you this wonderful food, all this stuff. And so I just, I kind of think about it as like a really tragic example of, of how immigrants can be kind of, you know, played on in, yeah. in a new space. Mm-hmm. So that's my take. So that's Bill Gunnis for you. That is oh. Bill. Ah, oh, Lady Bluebeard. Oh, yeah. That was good. Damn. Thank you. That was a long one, y'all. Yeah, that was a long one. It's okay. Totally worth it. And to be honest, like, I wanted to tell the story and then... When I started, I kind of gotten like the dredges of this research, and I was like, ah, I don't know about this. It wasn't connecting, and then mm. all of a sudden it was, and suddenly it, this whole legend now has this like new reality in my imagination. It's so interesting. It's so interesting just how she lured men. Yes. And that she got away with it for so long. Years, years and years and years. Years, and and again, like. There was totally suspicion around town. Yes. Yeah. I think a lot about like this, like this mythos of like who a serial killer is and how they operate. When we think about serial killers, I think for most people who who comes to mind is like Ted Bundy. Right. And like automatically. And then you're like, well, Belle Gunness, like she had this reputation as being like not the easiest person to get along with. It's not like she was super charming. Mm-hmm. And she got away with this for so long and people knew that there's something going on over at the Gunness farm, you know? Yeah. And you know what I think too is like, I think you're right about like kind of the cultural imagination we have around serial killers. And I kind of think of her almost as kind of a Samuel Little-esque figure in a way. Yeah. Just in the way that she was like really preying on people at the fringes of society. Mm-hmm. You know? And that if we were to profile her now, I think that would be who I would kind of correlate her with in a way, or like a Sawa. Um, yeah. Or something yeah. like that, who's preying on people that, you know, it was a different, you know, day and age and everything, but preying on people that would be a lot harder to miss, you know? What yeah. I mean? Like they profile their victims and they target their victims, but not in that kind of very glamorized way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's part of why Ray Lamphere didn't end up being one of her victims. There was something about their relationship that was different. They connected, yada, yada, but his family was in town. Mm-hmm. People would know and follow up if Ray Lamphere had gone missing. Yeah. Interesting. So, so yeah, that's the story. Thank you. Oh, you I enjoyed are so that welcome. one. I'm glad you did. I enjoyed telling it and I enjoyed writing it. So Yay! I'm glad. I am. Uh. Glad. 
<sighs> Whoa, man, that I'm gonna have to like come down from that now. It's like yes. late and I gotta go to bed, but man. And our fans are going to have to come down from it because next week is Christmas. Yes, it is. My and so we're Christmas. taking next week off. I need to shop, y'all. Shit, oh y'all. I'm not done. I'm not done. Uh, I've barely even started. So anyway, everybody finish your hol- your holiday shopping. Yes. Spend some time with your family safely, distancedly. Yes. Um, <sighs> and if you're lonely for Midwretched, since we won't have an episode next week, um, I, you know, you could always go back and re-listen to an old favorite. Yeah, go listen to an old favorite. Yeah, or one that you haven't looked at before. Yeah. Or whatever. I do that all the time with my favorite podcasts. I, I do that too. That we're your favorite podcast. I hope so. <gasps> Speaking of favorite podcasts, next week we have a listener suggestion. Yay! Yay, this is our first listener suggestion that's not like my sister or my mom. Yeah, thank you. So thanks to that wonderful suggestion, next week we are going to be covering the story of Lorraine Kirkley. Ooh. And we're going to be staying right in your neck of the woods. That's crazy. What town is it? In Valpo. Oh. Oh. Yeah. I was going to do some of my Christmas shopping in Valpo. Oh. So that's interesting. Um, And yeah, we're going to cover the story of Lorraine Kirkley. It's a crazy tale. Really? Okay. Yeah. I'm really I'm psyched. So that will be the week after Christmas. So enjoy your holidays. Enjoy your couple of days off work, hopefully. Yeah, seriously, hopefully. And if you don't have it technically off, go ahead and take it off because you're worth it. If you're working from home, nobody needs to know. That's right. That's right. Pandemic it up, friends. Mm -hmm. Don't put on a bra. Don't put on pants. Nope. Just eat. I won't be. I'll have two weeks off. I won't be wearing a bra that whole time. Everyone have a great time. We'll miss you. We'll be back with a fresh one the following week. And uh, yeah, take care of yourselves out there. And you know, take a minute to remember the victims of Bell Gunness because wow, are there a lot of them and Damn. they are worthy of remembrance. So, hell yes. On that note, should we wish people a very merry, be nice, eat cheese? And we love you. We love you. Yay. Bye, friends. Bye, friends. So uh, they did process a sex sex a sexy a sexy reimbursement a big sexy insurance claim no they <laughs> i mean it, i mean probably was to bell